Some of this history makes for uncomfortable listening. What you're about to listen to comes from a different time and world. In the words of the late Ngāti Toa Aura, Uncle Iwi Nikusen, Nā, ko te ao Māori tērā, tā rātou mahi he patu tangata, kai tangata, muru taonga, muru whenua, ko te ao Māori tēnā, me o tikanga. Well, that's the traditional Māori world. What they did was kill people, eat people, forcibly take possessions and land, even though it's unpleasant. That's the traditional Māori world and its customs. Imagine a time of great change, of new technologies, new belief systems and new ideas, where the old ways have been called into question and the future is uncertain. It's probably not that hard for you to do. Now imagine being a teenager at a time like that. And so we find Tamihana, the author of our manuscript and son of the great Taroparaha, hitting his teen years as the country around him completely transforms. After centuries of living within their own cultural system of values, colonisation by the British has come as a rude shock to Māori. The British took this region by force. With them come new institutions. A port, a town, hospitals and schools. New technology. New religion. Tamihana is bringing the gospel. Some thought it would be more powerful than the traditional stuff. New ideas. The idea that Māori would lay aside and struggle. A new way of being Māori. They could see the world was changing. But change also presents opportunities. Sensing this, Tamihana was prepared to stand up to his father in order to implement his vision of the future. A lot of us have argued with our fathers at that exact age, saying, you're wrong, Dad. But our dads went to Rauparaha. For Ross Kalman Tōpū Ingwa, and this is episode 5 of Te Rauparaha Kei Tao Huri Huri. Oh, a karakia. Well, you can do a karakia, Ross. That'd be nice. <laughs> oh, you don't have to. I can do it. You do it. Uh, e te atu i rongarawa manaki te o mātou mahi i tēnei rā. Uh, Amene. Amene. This is Hiani Collins. She's a Ngāti Raukawa and Ngāti Haumia writer and historian. Hiani descends from Tiako, Tamihana's mother, and Hape Kituarangi, Taroparaha's uncle. Tamihana was very much part of our Fano, so he was like the half brother of our Tupuna Horoho. Hiani's 2010 book Kamate Kaura, The Spirit of Taroparaha was the first biography of Taroparaha to be published by a Māori author. She knows Tamihana's manuscript pretty well and drew on it extensively for her book. All right, so what, what's your main focus and how are we going to do this? I'll just Before we get into it, a quick recap. From the late 1820s, there's a lot of different things happening for Ngāti Tōa. War with Ngaitahu, of course, but also more and more trading with Pākehā sealers and whalers. This requires pretty intensive industry, growing crops, 
raising pigs, fishing and scraping flax. And so everybody worked together in processing the harakeke for sale to the passing ships and it was Tarapraha that they would ask for and talk to and so he really dominated that trade. Remember a number of Ngāti Tor's allies, including Ngāti Tama, Ngāti Mutunga and Te from Taranaki and Ngāti Raukawa from Waikato have arrived on Kapiti Island in the wake of the battle at Waiorua. So Kapiti Island was the base initially. And it's from there that Taraparaha is really building an empire. Top of the South Island as well as up to the Rangitake down to Port Nicholson. You know, it was all his territory and the place in which he maintained those relationships for knowing a tanga. In periods of peace, Taraparaha moves around his rohi, tending to his cultivations and harvesting food. Ka kite hoki a te rauparaha e aroha ana ngā pākeha ki aia, ka aroha atu hoki a te rauparaha ki aua rangatira kaipuke i aroha maira ki aia. To the Pākehā captains who treat him well, te rauparaha supplies pigs and potatoes. From the mid-1830s, some of the whalers set up whaling stations on Kapiti in the small offshore islands. So many whaling stations in those days, eh, in that? Until they started to run out of whales. But, yeah, ships were coming from all around the world. You know, they were using that whale oil for lighting the streets as well as inside the houses. Terrible to think of all that slaughter. I thought you were going to say the smell of the whale. Oh, and the smell. The stink of the whaling tripods. Tommy Hunter talked about that, didn't he? Yeah. And he talked about the ships from all around the world. Yeah, he talks about... You could hear the languages of people from Russia and Denmark, Germany and just about every place you can think of. The ship's captains want to keep on good terms with Taroparaha. They show their appreciation by giving him blankets, which are highly prized by Māori in this period. Meanwhile, it's become pretty crowded on Kapiti Island. There's got to be a couple of thousand people living there, what with Ngāti Tor, their allies, captives taken in battle, and increasing numbers of Pākehā. So, many of the allies move off the island to settle on the mainland, onto lands allocated by Te Rauparaha and other Ngāti Tor chiefs. These are the former lands of the Kūtahopo tribes. Broadly speaking, Ngāti Raukawa settled in the Horofenua, Ōtaki and Manawatū, Te Awa at Waikanae, and Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Mutunga at the Whanganui Atara, Wellington, in the Hutt Valley. The gifting of these lands creates a buffer for Ngāti Tōa against future attack, as well as creating an obligation among these groups back to Ngāti Tōa. But the arrival of a new migrating party from Taranaki upsets the delicate balance in the region, and the alliance starts to break down. As Ngaitahu historian Tamari Tau alluded to in the last episode, Ngāti Tōa were in the position we were half a decade earlier, fragmenting. Tōa's got more than enough problems on its own territory. There's stealing of kai, arguments over resources and boundaries, and there's jealousy and resentment building in the other iwi over Ngāti Tōa's domination of trade with Pākehā. Then, in 1833-34, Ngāti Tōa get caught in the middle of a big fight between an alliance of all the Taranaki iwi against Ngāti Raukawa. 
Tamihana says that this situation, kind of like a civil war, was exactly what Taraparaha had been trying to avoid by leading the original heki south from Kafia. He tries to dampen down the conflict because he knows that it will split Ngati Tor in two. Many have whakapapa and marriage connections to the Taranaki iwi, while Taraparaha and his immediate whanau identify more closely with Raukawa. But people start getting killed, and there needs to be utu. And these aren't small fights. Some of these battles involve upwards of a thousand warriors on each side. The guns meant a lot of people get killed. By this time, Māori are armed with a lot of muskets from all that trading. Tamihana gives blow-by-blow accounts of these fierce battles over many pages. Ko te takiwā o te roanga o tēnei whawhai e rua raumati ko tahi te makariri. The fighting goes on for two summers and one winter. There's been no time for mahinga kai, so the people are starving. Finally, after a whole lot of other iwi join in, the Raukawa side gains the upper hand. Taraparaha, who has lost some of his close kin in the fighting, finally says enough is enough, and peace is restored. For now. Although Hau Whenua, which is what this conflict is now called, takes Taroparaha's focus away from Ngaitahu for a while, both iwi remain on a war footing throughout the 1830s and continue to send off war parties. I don't think Taropraha and the others could see it ending at that point. Fast forward to 1839, and Taropraha is thinking of sending another war party to Tawaiponamu. But Tamihana and his cousin Martini Te Fifi have been captivated by a spirituality they've learnt about, which preaches peace. As young men, they were blooded into the front ranks of the warrior activity. Piripi Walker, Ngāti Raukawa kayako, linguist and broadcaster. They were at the front of many of the large campaigns and the battles, and they saw them firsthand. You know, the bodies were piling up. So when a visitor arrives in Ōtaki, bringing word of missionaries living in the Bay of Islands... Tamihana and Martini see the possibilities. Kaore kua tai mai ngā mihana re ki te taitokerau, ki pēwhairangi, kauhau mai ai i te rongopai, me te kauea hairetia mai e ngā taurekereka i hereherea atu e ngā pui tainoa mai ki kāpiti nei. The visitor carries with him a section of the New Testament. Tamihana and Martini teach themselves to read and begin to learn about Christianity. Eventually, the young men decide to head to the Bay of Islands themselves to see if they can get a missionary to come south. To supervise that shift into what people have called a new way of being. Taroparaha forbids it. He's not against a missionary coming. He's worried for Tamihana and Martini's safety. It's almost like he has a ledger in his head, and he knows Ngāpuhi have reason to take Utu against him because of an incident from 20 years before. But Tamihana and Martini go anyway, catching a ride on an American ship. He was young, he was idealistic. I think he wanted the new order. And he was prepared to argue with his father about it. And it's not unknown. 
A lot of us have argued with our fathers <laughs> at that exact age, saying, you're wrong, Dad. Nō tō mau a taenga atu ki pēwhaerangi, ka riro mai a mau a ko te harawira. Ka tai mai ki kāpiti, ka ākuna nei mātou, ngā iwi o tēnei pitu ki te whakapono. They managed to convince the Anglican missionary Octavius Hadfield, whom Māori call Te Harawera, to come back with them. Hadfield arrives on the Kapiti coast in November 1839, eager to share the gospel with a new congregation. I think, this is my own personal belief, I think that the Christian conversion of Māori was a profound, genuine adult conversion. They examined the arrival of a new spiritual force, a new atua. Some writers and thinkers in Tao Māori say it was possibly a Māori thing to do. You've got another atua. Let's bring it alongside the other ones. Parapi is a practising Catholic, and so perhaps understands Tamihana's faith better than many. Christianity is a terribly radical and highly subversive idea on all sorts of fronts. It makes an outlandish promise about a new and brighter life beyond this life. I mean, it's unbelievable. Who can believe that? And then for Māori, it said you'd have to end polygamy. You have to stop having more than one wife. And also having slaves. Well, Tamihana and Martin, if you had multiple slaves, many multiple slaves, at the time that Hadfield arrived, all of those other things were there in the paper. So why would they turn away from the old order, from all of those things, from their, their background and the utu, and all of those things of being Māori, I think both because of the exhaustion of war and the desire for a new way. So Tamihana went into that fairly easily and fairly quickly. Tamihana and Martini are so taken with Christianity that they decide to become missionaries themselves. You know, the soldiers of the missionary Christianising effort, as they were called, the young Christian chiefs. And spread the gospel to the people of Ngaitahu. His father told him not to go. But against Taraupara's wishes, again, Tamihana and Martini do go. His father was wild with them about making that journey down. Ki hai huki i whakarangona atu e maua ngā riri mai ato maua matua. They sail a small whale boat to to Waipaunamu. Tai atu ana maua ki potikupa, ki whangaroa, ki moira. Tamihana says they travel to Littleton and Nakaroa, onto Otako, and all the way down to Ruapoke Island near Bluff. Whakapuna katoa ngā tangata o Ngaitahu. All the people of Ngaitahu wholeheartedly believed in the word of the true God in heaven, he writes. It would have been tense for him. No kidding, it would have been tense. His father hadn't exactly made a lot of friends down south. When Tamihana gets down south, those chiefs take it seriously. There's an account where they take him to see the general. Is your father going to come and attack us and take away our lands? This is what Tamihana says every Ngaitahu chief asks him on his travels around to Waipaunamu. Tamihana's bringing the gospel, which is a Christian settlement. So the thing about a Christian settlement is you have to forgive each other. That would have been the challenge for everyone. Tamihana really was very brave to make that trip. But his gamble pays off. He assures Ngaitahu that his father isn't coming to attack them. 
and he spends a whole year with the people of Rakiura and Murihiku. He was filled with the idea that he had a mission. Piripi Walker. It was the key point in the idea that Māori would lay aside armed struggle. As they entered into relationships with the British, that was always likely to be becoming outlawed or illegal, eventually. And they could see that further pursuit of bloodshed was needing to be put aside. Yeah. Okay, so Tamihana's mission has skipped us ahead a bit. We need to rewind three years or so, because another tribe that has been on the periphery of our story is about to become a major player in it. I'm talking about the British. Headed up by the Wakefields, the New Zealand Company is a British organisation that has been furiously buying up land around Te Whanganui Atara and Te Tau Ihu since their ship the Tory arrived in October 1839. They're basically trying to grab as much land as they can before British law kicks in, and they have to do their deals more honestly. And this spurs the British government into action. They send William Hobson, a naval officer, to negotiate a treaty with Māori chiefs to pave the way for Britain to take over part or all of the country. Hobson and the British resident James Busby draft a treaty with Māori, which the missionary Henry Williams and his son translate into Te Reo Māori. A large group of northern Māori rangatira signed the treaty at Waitangi on the 6th of February 1840. A number of copies of the treaty are then made and taken around the country to get other chiefs to sign. He's the only one to sign it twice. Ngāti tōkaumātua Taku Parai, talking about our shared ancestor Te Rauparaha. When William Hobson sent Te Tiriti o Waitangi around Aotearoa, he told Henry Williams, Make sure that you get Te Rauparaha's signature when you get down to Tūbukatika. So he ends up signing two different copies of the treaty a month apart. Within a few years of the treaty being signed, it becomes apparent to Māori that the British are here for good, and they want to bring in their own government and laws. Some are less than happy about it. But Tamihana? He was very, very keen on colonisation. Taumachi Rei agrees. He says Tamihana liked all the Pākehā things, the clothes, the religion. He was different to the others, Taimachi says. He was a man of peace. He eventually came up with a plan of how the iwi would modernise, how it would create towns, cities, Fifi. They were both explicit about it. Schools, hospitals, they wanted it. They wanted it. The balance of power in Aotearoa is shifting. After Tetiriti is signed, settlers come in by the boatload, expecting land to be available for them to settle on. So in Wairau, um, probably the most well-known whakatauki is Kaiputa Te Wairau, and it's a reference to the sun that will always shine 
on the Waido. This is Peter Mayhana. He's a historian with Whakapapa links to Rangitane, Ngati Kuia, Ngati Apa, Mengaitahu. He's also Ngati Toa, but he identifies more strongly with his Kurahopo Whakapapa. Rangitane descend from ancestors who arrived in Wairo, near Blenheim, during the very earliest years of Māori settlement in Aotearoa. You know, when those first people arrived in the 13th century, they would have seen an environment that was plentiful. At that time, of course, there was the moor. The climate was such that you could grow kumara. You had two very large wetlands, and so those areas have always been acknowledged as food baskets and Te Rauparaha would have seen those resources as well. In the years leading up to the treaty, Rangitane and Ngāti Tōa have managed to peacefully coexist at Wairo, intermarrying and tending the land together. And they're both pretty surprised when another group turn up claiming this beautiful piece of whenua. OK, we're going to rewind again, but we'll be back in 1843 really soon. Bear with me. About a decade earlier, in 1832, there were literally dozens of whaling ships visiting the Cook Strait each season. And one of these whaling ships was led by a captain by the name of Blenkinsop. This ship pulled up at Wairo, and Blenkinsop saw all the same things that Rangitane and Ngāti Tōa had seen before him. Plenty of sun, good soil, and great fishing. Who does this place belong to? Kākiatu a te raupraha. Nōku. Mi. Ka mea mai taua rangatira a kāpene piringatapu. I want this place. Kākiatu a te raupraha. Kāore. No. E kore e tuko atu e au. I will not part with it. Katohi mai anō taua pākeha. I want it. I will purchase it soon. When I get back from overseas, from Port Jackson, I will pay for it. For now, I will leave my cannon with you as a deposit for the wire. But the cannon fell off the boat, bringing it to shore, and it sank. Blinkensop misled Taropraha and the other rangatira into signing a sale document. And they did sign, with pictures of their moko. Ngāti Tor thought they were giving Blinkensop the right to take water at Wairo. When he got back to Kapiti, Taropraha asked a Pākehā trader to translate Blinkensop's document. In halting Māori, the trader told Te Rauparaha the document sells the whole wairo. One big gun the payment, all this land. Te Rauparaha was seriously pissed and threw his copy of the contract on the fire. It'd be almost comical if it didn't all come to a pretty tragic end 11 years later. Back in our story's current time, 1843, Blinkensop is dead, but his widow has sold the document that purports to purchase Wairo to the New Zealand company. As far as they're concerned, Wairo is theirs, and ripe for development. The Wairo affray takes place 17 June 1843, three years to the day that um, the chief signed to Te Reteo Waitangi out in the port. Peter here is talking about Port Underwood near Blenheim. The company had been sending surveyors over under the assumption that the Waido had been purchased. But... Māori denied it. Te Rauparaha denied it. That didn't stop the surveyors. 
So the locals begin removing the surveying equipment. The people pulling out the pegs, the surveyor pegs, were rangitani. Ngati Tō sent a delegation to Whakatū, Nelson, to point out that the Waido has not been sold. But what I find interesting is that the delegations that went over to Whakatū said, let's wait for Spain, let's wait for Commissioner Spain. William Spain was a lawyer employed by the British government to look into all the land purchases that took place prior to the treaty being signed. His job was to determine whether they were valid, and this included Blinkensop's purchase of the Wairo. So Māori had actually, were actually willing to follow due process. Up to this point, Ngāti Tōa are really showing a lot of patience and giving Pākehā government officials a chance to resolve the matter peacefully. But then some other things happen involving Pākehā that really upset Ngāti Tōa. Like the murder of a Ngāti Tōa woman, Rangiawa Kuika, and her 18-month-old child by a whaler and ex-convict called Dick Cook. And Ngāti Tōa, rightfully so, were going to exact Utu because of what happened. A local missionary intervened who convinced Ngāti Tōa that they should uh, wait and let British justice take its course. Well, he got off. Cook later confessed to the crime, by the way. Also, there are reports of Pākehā digging up Māori burial sites to steal taonga. Flippin' heck. Ngāti Tōa extremely patient. The New Zealand company is still refusing to listen to Te Rauparaha sending more surveyors over to the Wairau. And so when Te Rauparaha finally had enough, he came over to Wairau along with the, uh, his warriors. Te Rauparaha, Te Rangihaiata, Te Hiko, he's to be his son, and the rest of the Ngāti Tōa warriors arrive. Over a few days, they try to get rid of the surveyors, warning them repeatedly that they need to leave. They burn the locally sourced materials that were used for the shelters and pegs, but allow the surveyors to take away their equipment. And eventually the surveyors leave. Ngāti Tōa even helped them carry their belongings back to the Europeans' canoe. But when the surveyors get back to Whakatū, the New Zealand company are irate. They decide to take care of things once and for all. They sign up a group of 47 reluctant volunteers some of them appointed as special constables, and head to Wairau to arrest Te Rauparaha and Te Rangihaiata for arson and destruction of property. No doubt, the lead agent on that day were Ngāti Tōa, Te Rauparaha, Rangihaiata, but there were a number of tribes there. Rangitāne, Ngāti Kuya and Ngāti Rārua were all at Wairau. The tribes who had assembled there recognised that there was a common enemy in the company and they turned up on that day to defend their land rights. Yeah. Henry Thompson, the police magistrate, is known as a hothead and a bully, with no knowledge of or respect for tikanga. He was involved in an incident over in uh, Golden Bay where he, um, where he assaulted a chief. Yeah, and so when he turns up on the day, I think he probably would have been recognised. So Thompson... The New Zealand companies Arthur Wakefield and their volunteers go to arrest Te Rauparaha and Te Rangihaiata, who really don't want to fight. They say so too. 
But when Thompson tries to handcuff Tarobaraha, tempers flare. A Pākehā gun goes off, and Tarangi Haita's wife, Te Rongo, is shot dead. All hell breaks loose. People on both sides are killed. Wide awake, wide awake. That's what Tommy Hunter calls Wakefield. Maybe because he wore glasses. According to the manuscript, Wakefield hangs out the white handkerchief. Was the strategist. He was willing to cut a deal with Wakefield in them. As Taku alludes to, Te Rauparaha says he will spare the people who surrender. E kore koe e mate, ara koutou e wairaweke. Ka ora koutou e au. You know, I'll let you go. Don't come back, don't be a nuisance. And I think he was thinking about future opportunities with Wakefield. But Tarangi Hayata needs to avenge his wife's death. His nephew stepped forward and says, uh-uh, yeah, this is not the go. This is how this should unfold in terms of our Māori worldview, our tikanga and koa for such a, a, a way the militia had conducted themselves and with him losing his wife, Tarongo. So his uncle had no choice but to step back. All up, 22 Pākehā, including Wakefield and Thompson, are killed. Some during the battle, and the rest by Tarangi Haata afterwards. On the Ngāti Tor side, four people are killed. The Wairaua Fray is a super important event. Some people say the start of the New Zealand Wars. It's also a fork in the road for Taraupara and Tarangi Haata. Until this point, these two incredible leaders and warriors have been absolutely loyal to each other. Now their paths begin to diverge. Despite what's happened, Te Rauparaha is keen to keep the lines of communication and trade with Pākehā open, as Piripi says. Te Rauparaha appeared to be willing to engage and was open to the idea of friendship. You know, it's clear that some of those Pākehā quite enjoy their interaction with him. But Tarangi Hayata doesn't want a bar of the British. Tarangi Hayata was immovable in regards to his thoughts and ideas. Taku Parai again. Uh, I think once he established the reason why they were here, Parker, as a whole, he got more militant and more resistant. Tarangi Hayata is usually described as Taroparaha's nephew, but was senior to Taroparaha on his father's side, as Tamachi Ray explains. Yeah, everybody says, oh, well, Tarangi Hayata, he's the Iramutu of Taropara, he's Katikatina, or Tira Kotana Matua, not the Kawai of Hogarty. So, in a sense, he was, yes, he was his nephew, but he was also his senior at Tukanda Kia Taropara. Yeah, Tarangi Hayata was one of those important leaders who carried our wānanga traditions. Here's Hiani Collins. Though you don't often hear him described as a tōhunga, he did have a lot of those abilities and really deep, deep knowledge of our traditions and history. You know, he, he was staunch in terms of 
having those principles around rangatiratanga that he fought for. And, <laughs> you know, Tarangi Haida was a very early inspiration and leader of that resistance in this rohi. Hene is not the only person we spoke to for this podcast who's in the Tarangi Hayata fan club. He was very proud, strong. He was no nonsense. I've been with Team Tarangi Hayata for most of my life. You know, if only the warrior leader could have prevailed. Tarangi Hayata is, in so many ways, uh, such an attractive Renaissance Māori person, the scholar, the carver of the meeting houses, totally loyal to his tradition. He'd be one of the only rangatira at that time that you would see in any picture. He doesn't wear any party of regalia. You know, Tarova and him got these, um, you know, got these sailor suits on and these caps and hats. And but Tarangahaita, no time, no patience for it. And notably, was the most magnificent wearer of Māori clothing. He he won the contest. You know, those balls of down in his ear. That's the saying. Handsomely turned out. He liked that. <laughs> Tamachi Ray mentions that Tarangi Haita did like a few Pākehā things. Guns, gardening tools, liquor and tobacco. But overall, Tarangi Haita's position is clear. He doesn't want to see foreign influence imposed on his people. And he's willing to fight back. After what happened at Waido, feelings between Pākehā settlers and Māori generally begin to cool. The event was reported from a Pākehā perspective, of course and viewed as cold-blooded murder by Ngāti Tor. A few months later, a new governor named Fitzroy arrives and finds that Ngāti Tor had been provoked. He takes no action against them. Pākehā settlers are outraged and put pressure on the British government to get rid of Fitzroy. In 1845, he's replaced by George Grey. I would say he's the bloke that made everything in our race relations go wrong. Remember, Grey is the guy we talked about in the first episode, who collected a lot of Māori waiata, letters, pūrāko, and the very manuscript this podcast is based on. He's a complex man. Grey is very good at playing the tribes off against each other. The other governors were not so ruthless. I think as a governor, a politician and also a general, as a director of military operations, he, he was a person who conceived of the job to be done and calculated a very large plan to defang that military alliance. George Grey is the guy the British send in when colonisation hits a roadblock, when the natives are being difficult. At this stage, the New Zealand company believe that they've purchased land from Wellington South Coast up to the Tararua Ranges. It was signed over by Tiatiawa. But Ngāti Tor say that they had no right to sell it. All land deals in the area need to go through Te Rauparaha, Te Rangihayata and Te Hiko. So Grey heads in to get rid of the problem. I think a lot of people don't really realise that the British took this region by force and how that happened. We're back with Hene Collins. At this time, some of Ngāti Tor's allies are living in the Hutt Valley. 
Ngati Rangatahi and Ngati Tama. So they produced a lot of Wellington's food supply, especially potatoes. And the politicians and the settlers didn't like being dependent on Māori for food. They wanted to take over that land, you know, fertile river valley, to grow the food themselves and to be more self-sufficient. There was a lot of pressure on these iwi to move off the land. And European settlers are moving in, despite Commissioner Spain conducting an inquiry into the purchase of the area. Tarangi Hayata urges his allies to hold out, says he'll support them to defend the land. He gathers an army to fight back against the British, which includes a force from the Whanganui iwi, Ngāti Haua Terangi, led by Te Mamaku. So Tarangi Hayata led that resistance fighting in, in the Hutt Valley and then, anticipating an escalation of the conflict, Gray brings in martial law. And it was in 1846 that he brought in the big guns, about 500 troops on three naval vessels. The settlers, of course, were very keen and got all excited and militant. Terangi Hayata and his Ngati Tama allies set a boundary line, saying that Pākehā can live south of the line and Māori north but the British barged through and set up an outpost at Bullcott's farm, not far from where Hutt Hospital is now. Bullcott's farm was only lightly fortified. It was 20 acres of cleared land, but there was dense bush on one side. So Tamamaku and Ngati Haua came through that dense bush quietly in the early morning and, and attacked with guns as well as tomahawks and succeeded in killing six men and wounding others. It was seen as a, as a victory for Tarangi Hayata's uh, resistance. And the Europeans pretty much left Hutt Valley. They were frightened. It was a big setback. Meanwhile, Taropraha has been trying to calm things down and urging the two sides to talk rather than fight. But Grey doesn't trust that Taropraha can stay neutral. Yeah, Gray was starting to get suspicious that Tarapraha was being two-faced, that he was um, covertly supporting the resistance. Tamihana says that as Tarangi Hayata intensified his war against Gray, there was an increase in malicious rumours about Tarapraha appearing in print. Kua hara Tarapraha i runga i te whakapaiteka. Kua mutu tōna aroha ki ōna hoa pākeha. He says, according to the false allegations... Taraparaha had committed an offence and his love for his Pākehā friends had ended. Rumours circulate that Taraparaha is secretly communicating with Tarangi Hayata and aiding the resistance. In his manuscript, Tamihana denies this, saying there was no basis to the rumours. But despite a lack of concrete evidence, Gray decides that Taraparaha needs to be taken out of the picture. At this time, Taraparaha lives at Taupo Kainga, where Plymouthton is today, just north of Wellington. He had been warned by Tarangi Hayata that he should get away somewhere else, he was at risk. But they say that his wife Tiako was too ill, so he couldn't, he didn't want to go and leave her. Gray's troops go to arrest him. It involved 200 men arriving at daybreak and secretly, very quietly, except the geese made a big racket and grabbing him, and he was said to be naked between his two wives and covered in shark oil and, and cooker white. 
He might have seen it as some form of protection. Protection, all right. Shark oil would make him pretty slippery. So he wasn't easy to catch. Took four men. And he was yelling out to Ngāti Tōr, trying to get people to save him. Tāwingi Haita heard about it before long and, and attempted to rescue him. But the naval guys went out on their boat with a big gun and ordered him off. Taraupara was taken out to a naval vessel and held captive there. His iwi and other prominent chiefs protested this imprisonment, but it didn't get them anywhere. Ngāti Tor talks about it as a kidnapping, as the leading rangatira with the mana in our rohi. Taking him had a huge impact. He had been doing the liaising with the Europeans, so it meant a breakdown of that communication line. You could see it was a good strategic move on Gray's part in terms of weakening the resistance. And then it gave them a whole lot of leverage to get the iwi to sign over a whole lot of land. At the time of Taraparaha's abduction, Tamihana was away at Bishop Selwyn's St John's College in Auckland, studying to be an Anglican minister. Tamihana writes that if he had been there with his father at the time, everything would have been fine. He describes going to see his father on the ship, the Calliope, where they wept together. For a man who spent his entire life seeking utu for one thing or another, Taroparaha is surprisingly chill about this whole being arrested thing. He tells Tami Hana to look after their people and not to seek revenge. People should not think that I am wallowing in misery while I am held as a captive here in my man of war ship, Taroparaha says to Tami Hana. I'm not miserable. I do not feel like I am living as a captive. I feel like I am living like a chief, and that this is the chief's house that I am living in. I've got to question here whether Tummy Hunter is being completely honest in this account of that visit on the ship, or whether he's just being diplomatic and seeing things through the lens of his new religion. I only feel joy during the days that I am here. Go on shore and make sure that the people live in peace and harmony. Maybe in his old age he really had softened and accepted Christian ideas. Although we know he refused to be baptised. That might have been a step too far. The ship with Taraparaha on board sailed up and down the coast for about a year. Eventually, Taraparaha is allowed to stay with Portato to Fiddlefiddle in Auckland. Ironically, during this time when Taraparaha is held captive, he and George Grey really get to know each other. And Grey the collector... The anthropologist, not the ruthless governor, writes down a lot of Raha's kōrero. They never did 
show that they had enough evidence to convict him of anything. He was arrested for. Taraupiraha was freed in January 1848, after being held for about 18 months. By the end of the following year, he was dead. He died an old man. This is Takuparai. So many would have loved, loved to take his scalp, but he died an old man. I think genuinely, this is one of the reasons why Taraupiraha is so famous. So many people tried to take him down, but in the end, he died peacefully, of old age, and so many of his contemporaries didn't make it. With the death of Taraupiraha and other chiefs of his generation went the old ways of knowing and being. Or at least, that would have been the case if it weren't for Taonga like Tommy Hunter's manuscript. Taraupiraha was buried at Ōtaki, in Rangiatia Church Cemetery. Taku reckons the funeral would have been over quite swiftly because by Christianity standards he was known as a tyrant. You know, you're still a heathen. So I think it would have been quite swift, yet for the traditionists, uh, quite a heavy moment in their lives, losing a leader such as him. Tarangi Hayata watched his uncle's funeral from a seat on a nearby hill. Staunch until the last, he refused to wear a cap and cloak that Tamihana had had specially made for him. That would have been right. Well, yeah, it was from a hillside. And I guess that's when he took the idea around taking over to Kapiti. The corridor is that Tarangi Hayata took his uncle's remains over to Kapiti Island and buried him there. And I, I believe Tarangi Hayata would have done that too, being who he was. And maybe he's saying one of the waiata he wrote, this one, Toya Maira. Toya Maira te ata i kapiti engia ko te hoa ko taku whenua tupu. Toya Maira, beautiful. You know, he said you have the powers to turn into, into a dove. Why didn't you turn yourself rather than give yourself up to the pain? You know, you had the power to turn yourself into a bird. Yeah. And uh, you could have got away from there easily. Coming up in the final episode of Taraupiraha Kei Wariwari. Taraupiraha is gone, but what of his legacy? How do the actions of his life continue to resonate today? And what becomes of Tamihana? This series was made possible with funding from Manutu Taonga, Ministry for Culture and Heritage. It was researched, co-written and hosted by me, Ross Kelman. Kirsten Johnstone from Popsock Media produced, edited and sound designed the series. 
Music is by Mukultron, Ariana Tikal, Alistair Fraser, and Phil Boniface. Tor Waka is the voice of Tamihana. Melody Thomas of Popsock Media was our script advisor. Imogene Kelly from Manitou Taonga provided production support and historical checks. I'm grateful to all of our kaikōrero who have so generously shared their knowledge, their wisdom and their compassion. Tēnei te mihi aroha kia koutou katoa. Podua te pau, tukituki o te pau, whakarohi o ngā pekerangi, ngā tūkupu, ngā tokoru, o tēnei tangata, o tēnei pūrākau, o enei tūpuna. Kiwia wini wini kiwia wana wana hare atu te haukino te hauhuna te haukai taua. He toka tumoana haramai te toki haumie huie tāhi kie.